very nicely done. Beautiful, beautiful arrangement. And I believe the writer of that song is Chris Anderson. And uh, he just recently published a book, Theology That Sticks. And uh, it's uh, available uh, out on Amazon. I just uh, purchased the book and started to read that. And it has to do with uh, the importance of hymns, you know, the importance of good Christian music. We're thankful for the good Christian music that God has blessed us with here. The talent for one song. Thank you, ladies, for that. That was a blessing. John chapter 11. John chapter number 11. We had in our scripture reading verses 25 and 27, but I invite us to turn to the first verses of John chapter 11, and there's a, a little bit of narrative here uh, that we will work our way through, but I want us to just take a quick peek back to the end of chapter number 10, and that will then bring us to uh, this place in the ministry of Jesus, where four months, approximately four months after John chapter 10, Jesus is coming back to Bethany, and we'll see the story of Lazarus and Christ raising Lazarus, and in the context of that, Jesus makes the statement, I am the resurrection and the life. So we have been, uh, we turn to John chapter 11, and then we'll back up just a little bit. In verse 39 of John chapter number 10, we, we see there is a group of people who trust Christ as their Savior, that, that come to Christ. Verse 39 of John 10, therefore, they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. We have spent some time in John 10, and Jesus healed the, the man who was born blind, and using that backdrop, that background, he preached a sermon, had a discourse, and dialogue with the religious leaders, the Jews, many of whom were very antagonistic and opposed to Jesus. Yet there were some uh, who would believe in his matter of inspiration of the Bible and preservation of God's word, God continues to use the truth of his word, including these chapters in the book of John, to, to reach hearts for Jesus Christ. Continues to use his word to penetrate hearts and bring conviction of sin and bring us to repentance and faith in Christ. And we see here that as Jesus escaped out of their hand, verse 40, he went away again beyond Jordan. So he goes over across the Jordan River to the east side of the river into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. So he goes back over the Jordan River, goes into that region where John the Baptist had come out of, and notice in verse 41, and many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spoke of this man were true, verse 42, and many believed on him there. There's a contrast as we see in the book of John. One of the themes in the book of John is belief. We'll see eight times in John chapter 11. We'll see that, we'll see that word believe. And here we see the religious leaders in Jerusalem opposed to Christ, rejecting Christ, but Jesus goes across the Jordan, and here's a group of people who had heard John the Baptist preach, who had pointed, John the Baptist in his preaching had pointed to Christ, and we see that contrast. There in that wilderness region on the east side of the Jordan River, a group of people come to Christ. 
John had watered the soil. John had planted the seed. And now we see God giving the increase. Many believed on him there. So we see that this really humble region, we spoke on, I talked about this on Wednesday night in our study. As we introduced Elijah on Wednesday night, Elijah would, was come, he had come out of that same region. John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he preached the same message of judgment, of repentance, of faith, and trust in, in, in God and Christ for one's salvation. And from that humble region, we see many believed on Christ. And it goes to show once again the contrast between the proud, hypocritical religious leaders who had a knowledge of the Word of God who had a knowledge of God but denied the power thereof. And we see the fruit of John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist is gone into heaven. But we see the fruit of his ministry even as Jesus goes across into that region once again and those people, having heard the message of John the Baptist who pointed to Jesus Christ who said, He must increase, I must decrease. Who, as John the Baptist said, I am not worthy to even unlatch the sandals of Jesus. Who said, Behold the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. And they received Christ, and their sins were taken away by the Lamb of God. Praise God. And that brings us to John chapter 11. Now, four months later, we see there in John 10, some believed in Jesus as their Savior. But then we see in John 11, first of all, that God can be glorified through sickness and death. God can be glorified through sickness and in death. Four months removed now from that occasion there at the end of John chapter 10, we see the word now in verse 1 of John 11. Now a certain man was sick. It was this certain man named Lazarus. Of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Once again, we are faced with this challenge, a question that continues to come up to this very day. Why is there suffering? Why is there sickness? Why is there pain? Why is there death in the world? This is a question that men and women, really from all ages, have struggled with. What is the answer? What, what is the, the reason? What, what can we say? What, what can believers say? What Truth can we bring to this important topic, to this important issue? Well, Jesus, in verse number four, speaks once again as he did similar with the healing of the man born blind. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. God can be glorified through sickness and death. We see here that Lazarus was very sick. His sisters, Mary and Martha, his sisters, Mary and Martha, sent a messenger to Jesus. Verse number three. 
Now, they did not make a statement of command, and they did not necessarily, uh, we, don't, we really don't even necessarily see a question. We just see, in, in, not necessarily even an imperative, but just a, a declarative statement here. Behold, or Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Now, Jesus, from what we understand, was at Bethvera, or Bethabra, about 20 miles away from Bethany. So 20 miles would have been at least, at least one day's journey. Now, 20 miles for us in our cars is next to nothing. And some of us uh, have gas guzzler vehicles. Some of us have more economical vehicles. 20 miles might be one gallon of gas for, for some vehicles. For some, uh, that would maybe be a quarter or a half, a half a gallon. 20 miles is not that big of a deal for us. 20 miles in Bible times would have been a, probably about a day's journey by walking or riding a donkey, or as Dan Clark taught us uh, this morning, I don't know if anybody would run a, on a mule, 55, 60 miles an hour. I have no idea a mule could run 55, 60 miles an hour. Incredible. I doubt that they were riding any mules, uh, you know, at that at that rate of speed uh, over that rocky and, and semi-arid terrain. But nevertheless, they either had to walk that 20 miles, or they had to find some mode of transportation, horseback, back of some animal, for a distance of 20 miles. That would have been a fairly timely journey, fairly difficult journey. The statement is made: "Lord, behold, he whom Thou lovest is sick." They did not even really ask a question. They simply stated the fact that Lazarus, whom Christ loved, was sick. Whom Christ loved. This word love here is, in the original language, the word phileo, from which we get the word Philadelphia. This is brotherly love. This is family love. It speaks to a love of appreciation. speaks to the love of family, a, a brother, sister, a, a father or mother toward their children. It, it would just speak to that brotherly or to that family love. So what were they appealing to? They were appealing to Christ's care and compassion. Lazarus, whom you love. They understood that Christ was a man of compassion. That Christ was a man of love. Was Christ a strong preacher? Yes. Was Christ one who spoke the truth very boldly, very courageously, confronted the religious leaders, confronted the hypocrisy, confronted the sin? Yes. Yet they knew that Christ loved Lazarus. And it was almost as if they were to say, Jesus, just by simply reminding you of your love for Lazarus, surely you will come, and you will come quickly. Surely you will come, Jesus said, and you, 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 you will heal him. You will prevent his death. Maybe you could just speak the word, Jesus, like you did with the nobleman's son in John chapter number 4. Maybe if you, you hurry, maybe if you got here quickly, you could put your hands on him. And you could heal him as you've done with others. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus stayed. Jesus waited. 
He did not come. Not right away. Does that mean that in some way Jesus did not truly love Lazarus and Martha and Mary? When, when there is sin, when there is suffering, when there is pain, when there is death, does that mean that Christ, that God does not love us? That God does not care about our needs? That God isn't touched with the, the feelings of our infirmities and he doesn't sympathize and empathize with us? Surely he does. Surely God knows our sorrows. He knows our needs. He understands our suffering. Jesus, as the great high priest, we read in the book of Hebrews, is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Even Lazarus, Mary, Martha, Martha and Mary in particular, sending that messenger, they knew that Christ was a man of compassion, a man of love, a man of care, a man who sympathized with the weaknesses and the sufferings of man. Yes, Christ loved them. But he had a purpose in his waiting. He had a purpose in not coming right away. He had a greater plan that was going to be the best thing for them and a lesson for us in return. As we know, the Word of God, the inspired Word of God, preserved for us today, there's a lesson even in this for us about pain, about suffering, about death. Once again, we are reminded we are reminded that suffering comes as a result of sin. Pain and death come as a result of sin. There would be no death. There would be no suffering. There would be no pain if sin had not entered into the world. So through suffering, through death, through pain, we are reminded once again of our need for a Savior. We are reminded of our need to prepare for the next life. And this life right now does make a difference for all eternity. What we are doing right now has eternal implications. Satan loves to deceive us. He loves to get us all caught up in all the temporary, fleeting, temporal aspects of this world. And many times it's not until we suffer, it's not until we are on the brink of death or until there's a tragedy that we don't once again wake up to the reality that life is but a vapor that appeared for a little time and that we only have a short time here on this earth and what we do for Christ is what will last for all eternity. Christ had a purpose. His love was not a pampering love. His love is a perfecting love. As Warren Wiersbe says in his commentary in this passage. Christ's love is not a pampering love. It is a perfecting love. Christ loved Lazarus. He loved Mary and Martha. It would, you would think that the loving, the most loving thing to do would be for Jesus to just immediately drop everything that he was doing and to go to Bethany immediately. Walk that 20 miles, ride that 20 miles, get there within a matter of hours. Yeah, he put his hands on Lazarus and raised him up. But we find out that Lazarus was in the tomb four days before Jesus would raise him up. It speaks to the fact that Christ's love is a perfecting love. 
See, God doesn't shelter us from all suffering and difficulty. He uses suffering. He uses difficulty. I don't completely understand why my dad died in 2008, why he suffered for many months with cancer. I did not completely understand, and to this day, I don't completely understand why God took my dad in 2008 at the age of 67. I miss him greatly. But I know that God used that in my life and in my family and in my mom's life in ways that I cannot even fully explain and I cannot fully comprehend and I can't even fully realize until I get to glory or I'll be with my dad because he was a born again believer who desired to raise me and my sister up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord for which I'll always be thankful. I can't wait to put my hand in my dad's hand and tell him, thank you. Thank you for instilling Christian principles in our home. He wasn't perfect. And those six months that he laid there dying of cancer were extremely hard. But I know that God gave a peace that passes all understanding. From the time I walked my dad to that oncologist appointment and the oncologist came out and said, there's nothing more I can do for you. To the point that my dad took his last breath that night on December 6, 2008. God was with us every step of the way. He gave us a peace that I cannot explain. God had a purpose and a plan. That's just from my own life. Many of you have experienced similar or the same or even more. And there's a way in which God works even through our trials and our sufferings and even to the point of death and the world does not have the answers. This is the time of year. Isn't it this time of year that we see all the ghosts and the goblins? You turn on the TV, you turn on the different streaming channels and it seems like you're bombarded with axe murders and bloody slayers. And I don't even begin to name all the different characters. Blood and guts and gore. That's what we have referred to it as in our house. And we have tried to make it a point. I know that for some of my peers growing up, as long as there was not the vulgar language and the immoral activity, you could watch all the blood and guts and gore that you wanted. But around our house, we were, I know some people would say it, it's sheltered. I'm thankful my mom and dad set some boundaries around our house and they not only guarded us as best they could from the vulgarity and the immorality on television, but they also said you're not going to watch programs and movies and TV shows full of blood, guts, and gore. They understood how it dehumanizes, how it causes insensitivity to life and death, murder, becomes entertainment. And we see it in our culture today. Hollywood, or excuse me, Halloween, Halloween is beginning to, I don't know all the statistics, but Halloween is beginning to out-profit Christmas in the marketing and the sales. What does that say about our culture? I'm not saying we can't have some fun around Halloween. I'm not here to tell you exactly how you are to celebrate or not celebrate Halloween. 
But I do think that this time of year is a evidence. It, it shows, it reveals some of where our culture is at. That our culture does not know what to do with death. I've spoken about this many a time already from this pulpit. But our world today turns death into entertainment, into profits. Turns it into something that is kind of romanticized and it's oh, just for, for fun and enjoyment. There's a thrill to a horror movie, to suspense, and there's a certain uh, level of mystery and suspense that I think is appropriate. But some of this blood, guts, and gore, and slashers, and serial murderers, and all that comes with it, I just wonder sometimes if we're not getting too desensitized to the death and the suffering that's all around us. And human life becomes nothing. And people can treat human life like it's just a annoying fly that was flying around a few minutes ago and just can be stained out whenever we feel like it. No wonder we have a problem in our culture with abortion, with the murder, the mass murder of unborn life. And there are people who have had abortions who they need our sympathy, they need our compassion, they need Christ many times. God forgives and God heals and God overcomes. But the way in which even abortion is marketed in our culture and the way that it is promoted as if those babies have to die. They have to be murdered at all costs. They must be removed. <coughs> it's a shameful, shameful reproach on our culture. And it shows the dehumanization and the insensitivity and the loss of reverence and regard for human life made in the image of God. God had a purpose in Lazarus dying. God was still in control. Christ knew what he was doing. He was on God's timetable. He knew that this trial would be good for Mary, for Martha, for Lazarus, for the people whom he loved. Sometimes we as parents and grandparents, sometimes we have to do the hard thing. Allow our kids to go through hard times. Sometimes we have to put them out there to have to make a tough decision or to have to go through a difficult circumstance and we're there and we use it as a teaching time, as a time that we can bring the principles of God's Word and apply it in that situation. It's hard for us to watch our kids struggle and sometimes to have to suffer. But sometimes that hard thing is the best thing for them, to help them grow up. Just like an eagle will kick her little eaglet out of the nest and force that eaglet to spread its wings and to fly. Because how will it ever learn to fly if it ever doesn't get kicked out of the nest? And have to sample what it's like to flap those wings and get that strength and to breathe that air and to fly. We can't protect our kids from every hard thing that comes in life. We can't protect our kids and shelter them from every difficulty or every difficult person or every hard thing. We have to insulate, especially as they get older and do less isolation. It doesn't mean that we don't still put boundaries and protections, but we prepare them for when they are adults and they have to go out and they have to make decisions on their own and they have ownership of biblical values and biblical principles so they can live those out in their life. 
And we do everything we can as parents and grandparents right now to instill within them biblical truth. And sometimes that means they have to go into some tough places, but it's with God's help and with some difficulties along the way, we can instruct and we can teach and we can help them apply the truth of God's word in that hard time. That God is faithful and God will lead you and God will guide you and God will protect you and God knows what he's doing and God loves you just like mom and dad love you. And we love you so much. We're going to take you through this. We're going to go through this together and we're going to learn. And we're going to learn to apply God's truth and we're going to keep our eyes on Jesus. And Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Later we'll see that Jesus wept, <coughs> cried tears, understanding and empathizing and sympathizing with their suffering. But his love was a perfecting love. And once again, we see any physical problem can be used to bring glory to God. It's often our perspective, it's often our attitude that makes the difference. If we focus on the problem and get our eyes off of Christ, we often become confused, angry, and bitter. But if we focus on the Lord and we apply biblical principles and biblical promises and biblical truth, biblical commands, we will experience God's peace and find ourselves undergoing tremendous spiritual growth. Our faith is strengthened. We trust God more. We look to Him greater through that suffering. Once again, we are reminded that sin and suffering is in the world because of sin. Though not all suffering and pain and death is the direct result of sin, we're reminded through this passage that sin results in death. That we all die because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there was going, there's going to be a great lesson regarding <laughs> sin and the overcoming of sin and the forgiveness of sin in this passage. As Jesus speaks to being the resurrection and the life. We know that sin has consequences. We know that sowing and reaping is a biblical principle. Sometimes there are consequences physical and mental and spiritual consequences for specific direct acts of sin, of disobedience against God and His Word. We see some of that consequential judgment in our culture right now where specific sins of the flesh and of the spirits, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, as those are lived out in our culture, there are consequential sins Sins, consequential judgments. The law of sowing and reaping is still in place. But as far as we know, nothing that Mar Martha, Mary, or Lazarus did caused Lazarus to be sick and to die. We simply have to trust and understand that in letting Lazarus die, Jesus had a plan. He had a purpose. And he speaks to that again in verse number four where this sickness is not unto death, not unto final physical death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now we're also reminded in this passage that God's timing is not always our timing. God's timing is not always our timing. Again, Lazarus will read further down that he was in the grave 
four days. Those around, specifically, I believe it was, was Martha, who said, if you roll the stone off of the grave, there, there will be a stench. He stinketh. It was clear that he was dead and had been dead four days. And in that day, they didn't have all of the embalming solutions and all the ways in which they can take care of a corpse like we have today. When a person died, from my understanding, within 24 hours, they were put in the grave. They could wrap the body up and they could put spices, you know, from Jesus' death that there were spices that were, were placed there at the tomb. And there were ways in which they tried to suppress that stench, that decay. But Jesus, again, he waited. We read there in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That's that love that uh, verse number 2, we read that it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet. And I just misplaced the uh, the verse, verse 3, excuse me. Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. That's the word for leo. But in verse 5, the love that is referred to that Jesus had for Martha and Mary and for Lazarus, that word love in verse 5 is the agape love, the sacrificial love, the highest form of love expressed in that word agape in the original language. We use one word, love, and try to describe it in lots of different ways. In the original language, verse 5 specifically uses the highest form of love, agape, to speak to Jesus' love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Verse 6, when he heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. So we're assuming that the messenger came and traveled to where Jesus was in Bethbara, 20 miles. That would have been a day. Jesus waited two days and then probably a day's journey to Bethany, so that's why there would be the four days when they get ready to open up the tomb. God's timing is sometimes hard for us to accept, isn't it? As parents, again, I keep coming back to uh, being a parent, and you know this as a parent or as a grandparent, or anytime you've been in a place of leadership where you have young people or people under you who you have to make decisions. It, it, it can be hard in those places of responsibility. And we can never please all the people all the time. My dad said many times growing up, you can please some of the people some of the time. Some of the people all the time, but you can never please all the people all the time. I learned that to be true. It was great advice my dad gave me. And here's Jesus, and he waits. And he waits another day. And again, this is a part of his plan. He's perfecting. He's got a purpose. His love has not lessened because he waits. He's simply testing and he's showing his power. And he's got a plan to ultimately declare his glory. Knowing Lazarus was gravely ill, Jesus still stayed where he was two more days. The delay was intentional. He's testing the faith of Mary and Martha and those other believers. And it's revealing to us how sometimes we pray effectual prayers that avail much. 
Sometimes God's answer is no. And it's that prayer, that effectual fervent prayer, that gets our heart in tune with God. So if His answer is no, we can humbly accept that. Instead of getting angry and throwing a temper tantrum. Oh, we don't like it when our kids or our grandkids throw two-year-old temper tantrum bits. How many times do we do that to God? I want my way. I want it now. And we get mad at God. We get bitter. We get angry. We throw a little temper tantrum bits. And then sometimes we bring that into the church and we get others affected by our bad attitude. Some people are only happy unless they're complaining. You met people like that? They just complain all the time, critical all the time. And they just have a bitter spirit, cantankerous spirit. Shame on us. That tells, that reveals something about our heart. It reveals that we're really not in tune with the Lord. We're really not trusting God. We're really not placing our faith in Him. We believe that God is just some big old green-eyed ogre up in the sky waiting to just sap us and make our lives miserable. How shameful of us to have such unworthy thoughts of our holy God when he says no. Sometimes God does say yes. And we can't pretend to be God in other people's lives and always know what everybody else deserves and not deserves. But we can accept sometimes that God says no. And sometimes God says wait. Though we always want God to say yes and yes right away. As a matter of fact, I, I've used this illustration before. But we are so used to this in our culture. I'm an Amazon Prime member. I have two day shipping, free two days, not free. Yeah, you're the membership, right? So it's not really free, but I have free two day shipping. I click on the item that I want, and I click to have it shipped to my house, and what do I expect? Two days to be at my doorstep. And we expect God to operate like FedEx and UPS and DHL and all the other, well, you know, the, the, sorry for some of you who work for the United States Postal Service. No offense, but we know that two days doesn't mean two days, right? Yes, no offense. Some of you are really good workers for the United States Postal Service. It's not all your fault. But we understand, we get into that mindset. God, I'm going to click on whatever it is I want. And I know for a fact, we had a great discussion yesterday in our, our men's Bible study about when we make choices that please ourselves versus pleasing God. Great discussion, great thoughtful. And we have this idea that God, I've already got my web page, I've got all my shopping items in the cart for my life, and I'm going to click, 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 and then I'm going to click on two-day shipping, and God, you better deliver. And if you don't, I'm not going to give you a five-star rating. <laughs> I'll shame on us. I'm going to quit on God. I'm going to quit coming to church. I'm going to quit reading my Bible. I'm going to just say, I'm just going to live my life the way I want because my God that I have claimed, He doesn't deliver according to my time, according to my way, on my schedule, the way I want Him to. Shame on us. And I've been guilty of that. And I still have to fight that mentality because I have this technology that I can click and I can get what I want. 
And nowadays, even more, we can just put it on our credit card. And now we are hearing more and more about with the high inflation and the economy that people are now, and I understand that the, the household income, or the household, excuse, the household debt is increasing to the point that some people are, are now in double digits on their household debt outside of a, a mortgage, you know, their, their, their house. It's incredible because we've even got this mentality that if I can't have it now, I'll just put it on a credit card. So I can't have it now. And that mentality gets into us in our spiritual lives. And we don't wait on God and we don't trust God. And we forget that God's timing is perfect. That it's often in our prayer that we are adjusting our mind and adjusting our heart and adjusting our life and adjusting our timing and submitting it to God's. Trusting that He is faithful. Christ did not love them less just because He waited and it was four days before He got to the tomb of Lazarus. As a matter of fact, Jesus will have to give a little illustration here. We see that Jesus, not only do some believe in Christ as their Savior at the end of chapter 10, and that God is glorified even through sickness and death, we see that Jesus was committed to doing God's will. Jesus is the perfect illustration and example of doing the will of God. Look down again in John 11. When we go to verse number 7, Then after that saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples saying to him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent he may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. And in verse 16, then said Thomas, which is called Lewis, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die. As a further lesson in God's timing, we see Jesus fully committed to doing God's will, to following God's timetable, to obeying his Father, even if that meant returning to Judea. And even Christ's disciples said, wait a minute, Jesus, Judea, don't you remember, Lord, what just happened in Judea? They picked up stones to stone you. They ate you there. You're going to go to Bethany, which is two miles from Jerusalem. You're going to go back into the center of the conflict, to the center of the persecution, to the center of all those religious leaders who are wanting to kill you, who are conspiring to murder you. And what is Jesus' answer? He gives a little illustration about the Jewish day. To them it was ridiculous that he would go back to the place where they wanted to kill him. But Jesus was not afraid. He went with boldness. He went with courage. He went with full commitment to God's will. And in this little 
illustration, he speaks of a Jewish day consisting of 12 hours. In other words, in that time, in that, excuse me, in that place, geographically, fairly close to the equator, they had roughly 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness in every 24-hour cycle. And I remember being in Kenya on a mission trip, and we were very close to the equator, and it's very true. We get about 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness in a 24-hour cycle. So in this illustration, Jesus speaks to the Jewish day consisting of 12 hours, which we understand begins around 6 a.m. as daylight breaks. And this 12-hour period represents the time that God had allotted for Christ to do His work here on the earth. Jesus was walking in the light of His Father's will, so He had no reason to fear. God had a specific task for Christ to accomplish, and Christ knew that He was doing exactly what God wanted Him to do. So how does that apply to us? There is no reason to fear when we are doing what God has commanded us to do, when we are fulfilling His perfect will. When we are obeying the word of God, we must not fear. We live in a culture that is continuing to fragment and to collapse and to undermine the authority of God's word and to attack biblical principles. We have a certain amount of time that we are given as believers to evangelize, to live for God, to lay up treasures in heaven, to do those good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them, to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, knowing it is God that worketh in us, both the will to do of His pleasure. We have a time. Christ knew He had a time. And if you've ever had a certain deadline, if you've ever had a certain job that you had to accomplish, many of us have had deadlines. We understood what it's like to have a job and to know that there's a certain time that we have to get the job done. And if we don't use our time wisely, if we don't make good use of the time, if we don't plan and we don't prepare, we don't work hard, then that time is wasted. The job doesn't get done and it's unfulfilled. And Jesus was fully committed to the will of God and he was courageous in going back to Jerusalem, to Bethany, outside Jerusalem, knowing that it was going to lead eventually to the cross. This miracle would be the seventh and final significant miracle that Jesus would perform that's recorded in the book of John. And then we begin to see those final days as Jesus is then arrested and taken to the cross. And we have a time when we'll see the Garden of Gethsemane and the discourses and the prayers of Christ. But Jesus was fully committed to doing God's will. What about us? Are there not areas of specific commands, clear Bible principles, where we just need to obey? Where it's just very clear, and yet we want to argue with God. We want to fear. We want to get out of it. We want to go a different way. We want God to make it easier for us, Lord. I'll obey you if you just smooth out all the paths and you just make everything nice and easy. If you just make everything peaches and cream. If it's all just whipped cream on top, full of sugar. 
Then, Lord, I'll serve you. Then I'll go without fear. Then I'll go courageously. But God has called us right here, right now, in the 21st century, to live out God's will, to be obedient to the Word of God, to be faithful, and to trust God with the rest. And Jesus walks right back into the heart of all that persecution. Out of love, even for the unsaved. Out of love for his own. And out of a full, single-hearted commitment to doing the will of God. I'm not even going to get to the last point of the message this morning. That speaks specifically to Jesus being the resurrection and the life. We'll have to continue that, Lord willing, next Sunday with part number two. But as we come to this point, as we close this message, maybe be once again reminded of the level of commitment that we must have for obeying the Lord, for doing His will, for completing His work that He has called us to do. Let's not be shirkers of the duties. Let's not be the lazy people who sit on the side and wait for, well, whatever will be, will be. This fatalistic mindset. Let's not be lazy Christians, complacent and apathetic. Let's get busy for the Lord. Let's work out the differences where we are struggling with relationships. Let's get those fixed. People are all we have. That's who we're going to spend eternity with. We need to fix them now. How are we going to have blessing from the Lord if we are caught up in bitterness and anger about our circumstances, about relationships? And on and on we could go, how are we going to be effective? How is God going to bless our church if we're eaten up with bitterness and anger, inviting and devouring one another? How are we ever going to know God's will? How are we ever going to be effective servants for the Lord if we're not willing to obey God, even in the hard things, even in the difficult matters, even when it brings a level of persecution, even when it, it means going right back into the teeth, we are going to have to deal with a culture. We are dealing with a culture right now. We have got to have strength and be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. I hear things on the radio. I hear things in podcasts every day. Some of you walk into workplaces where you face it every day. And the antagonism and the opposition is there. But we have a God who is faithful. And we must remain obedient and be faithful and return to Him. And we'll see next week, Lord willing, the power of the resurrection, the resurrection power of Christ and how that can be applied in our lives. And how that gives us a hope of heaven and the resurrection of our own bodies at the rapture. And the fact that one day we will give an account and there will be awards waiting for those who know Christ as the Savior and who have been faithful to Him, who have been good to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Word of God this morning that helps us. Lord, we are so weak and, and we're so frail sometimes. We get our eyes on the world and are like Thomas and the disciples and we begin to question God's motives and God's ways and we're even struggling in our faith like a Mary or a Martha and wondering why you're not answering prayers the way we think that you should. Or it's, it's so confusing at times but we rest in the promises of God's word. We rest in the truths. 
of the Word of God, the commands, the principles, the promises that we lay claim to and we trust you. And Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be good stewards. Help us, Lord, not to shirk in fear and to run away from the difficulties that you've called us to face. Lord, even through suffering and through trials, Lord, may we remain confident in you and keep our eyes on you and see you work in our lives and bring glory to your name. Lord, if there's someone here who does not know Christ as their Savior, Lord, may today they confess their sin and place their faith and trust in you and be saved today. Lord, as believers, Lord, do your work in our hearts and help us, Lord, in any area to get that fixed, to get that area right, that, Lord, we might be faithful and effective servants in your kingdom for your glory.